I'm Karen. And I'm Michelle. We're sisters. And homeschool moms. Welcome to the Layers of Learning podcast. Where we talk about family style homeschooling. Hello everyone. The past couple of months we've been talking about layers of learning subjects. We started with how we teach history and then how we teach geography. And today we're going to branch into Michelle's field of specialty and we're going to talk about how to teach science. So Michelle, you love science. I do actually. Yeah. You have a degree in science. I have a biology degree and I also have taken college level courses in all of the major science fields and I'm especially a lot of chemistry. So a lot of people are intimidated by science, but you've never felt that intimidation? No, but maybe I'm not the best example because I don't tend to be intimidated by very much, but I know that people are. And I think the problem is that people have put science on this big pedestal. And like, before you can even talk about it, you have to have this, you know, PhD or something. And that's not true. Science is just the study of the natural world. That is it. It is just learning about the physical world that we live in. That's what science is. And anybody can do that. You can do all of the sciences from your house. So one of the things that I've noticed is it's kind of a trend that people feel like scientists are the experts in everything. And they are experts in their field quite often. But I think that overlooks one of the main principles of science, the concept that we don't know everything. That is the point of science, actually, that scientists are scientists because they're curious people, because they want to learn more. And I think another problem, Karen, that goes right hand in hand with that is that when you're taught science in school, you're taught it as though it is done, as though it is the truth with a capital T, and that there is nothing else to know. And that is so far from reality. We actually are babies in our knowledge of the universe and the natural world. So there is a lot more to learn, a lot more to know. And a scientist who is, say, a a biology expert does not know about astronomy. I mean, nobody can know everything. So just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you even know everything about science. So what is the overall goal in your homeschool when you think, I'm going to teach my kids science? What are you thinking you want to teach them? There's two things. The first thing is I want them to learn about the knowledge we have already gained. So to go over, you know, the principles and the laws and the theories and the scientific knowledge that humans have already figured out for the most part. And then I also want them to learn how to actually do science. And that is by far the harder thing to teach because it's, it's teaching a way of thinking. It's teaching a way of looking. It's teaching that curiosity that scientists have. And I think that's a lot tougher than just reading about the gas laws in a book and then doing the math and answering some questions. So you think that's what makes it intimidating to a lot of people that doing the real experiments and things like that? I think experiments are, are intimidating to people, but I actually think that people feel like science is hard. Like it's intellectually difficult. And some of it is, especially once you get into the mathematical side of science, but most concepts can be taught to a six year old. If in fact the best teachers, the best scientists are people who can explain things on a very simple level. Wasn't it Feynman who spoke about that? I think it was. It was Richard Feynman, who is a physicist from the United States. He said that you don't really understand it if you can't explain it to a little kid or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. And that that's true. I mean, you can explain how an atom works to a little child and they can understand it. 
maybe not getting into all the quantum physics, but but the basics, even even some of the quantum stuff. Quantum physics is one of those words that people are scared of in science. And it's not as intimidating as it sounds. I think that might be part of the intimidation factor is that there's a huge amount of vocabulary. Science almost has its own language. Yeah, that's true. And if you don't understand the words, it can feel overwhelming. I I think just like in other subjects, one of the keys is to start out with your kids, hopefully when they're young, but wherever you're at, you're starting at the beginning and you're learning the concepts little by little with them. And you start out on, on the six-year-old level, and then you can go in deeper and deeper and deeper as you progress and repeat the subjects in the layers of learning. That's one of the reasons we repeat all of the subjects in school. Because, because you're learning at a new level? You're learning at a new level. You're getting deeper as you, as you get older. And, and just as you repeat, as you do it again, you can learn more. So, Michelle, I've noticed... If you go and search for a science experiment, like cool science experiments for kids or something like that, it's really hard for me to find the science that goes with the experiment. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot too. Like there'll be a, this is so cool, put put a little bit of soap and milk and drop in some food coloring and wow, but you didn't learn anything. It's like, wow, that was pretty, but you didn't learn anything. And so a science experiment has to be tied into the principle that is teaching in order for it to really be valuable. And I think that actually is probably one of the tougher things as a teacher. And most people, nearly everyone actually needs a curriculum to be pulled together and you can pull it together yourself. You can go and research and find that stuff out yourself, but that takes a lot of time. And so it's layers of learning does that for you. It's pulled together. So I've seen that experiment that you're, mentioning the yeah the you milk. have the pan of milk and then you have the food coloring scientifically what am I looking at when I see that well you you include soap in it too yeah okay? and so soap and the fat in milk are repelling each other right and so the soap will make it so that the food coloring can swirl across the milk if you didn't have the soap in there then the food coloring would disperse in a more even way through the milk and it would go into the water of the milk. Instead, the fat molecules in the milk are making it spread. So I could be watching this little demonstration happen, but if I don't understand the principles of the fat in the milk and the soap, I got nothing from that. You got nothing. And there's actually more than one lesson you can learn from that experiment. I mean, you could talk about brownie in motion, about how things just random, it looks like they're randomly moving like little particles, when really it's because the atoms are hitting one another. So, you you know, there are many, many different topics that you could talk about with that one simple experiment. But if you just have this cool recipe and you do it, then, I mean, it was cool, but what was the point? So when I'm teaching science, I'm looking for the experiments that have the scientific principles that go with them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, and I think the reverse. If you learn about the principle, but you never get to experiment with it, you won't understand it nearly as well. And for nearly everything that you learn about in science, you can actually do it at home or, you know, out in your yard. You can actually see it. You can do it. Not quite everything, but just about everything you can experience. You know, I don't know why this triggered in my mind right now exactly, but when my kids were first homeschooling, this was probably, it might have been our first year of homeschool because I remember my oldest son, it was when we lived in Florida, And so I was looking for little science experiments and things to do with the kids. 
and we had all of these tadpoles hatching in the canal right by our yard. And so I decided, hey, we're going to keep this little log of the development of the tadpoles. And it was a great experiment. We went out every day and the kids drew the tadpoles and we were watching as they grew and progressed. And I was feeling like a really, really accomplished homeschool mom, like just <laughs> good job. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Look at me go. And, you know, I was still really nervous about homeschooling and it was all really new to me, but we had this incredible science thing going on. And then sadly, I didn't know this because it was our first year living in Florida. I found out that the tadpoles were considered complete pests, that they were filling the canals all across our city. It'd be like city. one of the plagues of Egypt if they just let them go, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're <laughs> out there diagramming our little tadpole development and a truck drove by and sprayed the canals and it had some kind of poison in it. And right before my little new homeschooler's eyes, all of the tadpoles died. It was so sad. So you never know what, what turn science is going to take. See, you, you thought you were studying biology and then it turned into chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, we had a little kiddie pool in our backyard and a few of the tadpoles had made their way into the kiddie pool. So we were able to finish our observation and watch all the way through them becoming frogs. But it was pretty hard to explain to my little five-year-old what happened to the tadpoles. You never know how science is going to go. That is one question that I have for you, Michelle. Sometimes when I do an experiment, it doesn't seem to turn out the way that the book tells me it's going to turn out. How do you approach that when that happens? That's real science, first of all. Things are never quite as straightforward. You think, I'm going to follow this recipe and it's going to turn out perfectly. But the truth is, when I'm making bread, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can follow the recipe and it can end up being a flat loaf or whatever, you know. The truth is there are a lot of variables in the world that we don't necessarily always take into account. We don't even realize something is happening. So what do you tell your kids, though, if the experiment doesn't work? Well, what's first, the lesson? first of all, some some experiments are bad experiments. You know, they, they've been written badly and they're they're really fiddly or maybe they don't actually work. But the person who wrote them down thought they did or so you want to make sure that you're starting with a good experiment to begin with. And the second thing is, if it didn't work try it again, follow the directions again. That's what real scientists do and make adjustments. You know, maybe, maybe you should add the baking powder before you add the vinegar instead of the other way around. I mean, that's a simple example. And either way you add the baking powder and vinegar, it will work. But, but the point is real scientists do experiments all the time that don't work. That is most of what they do. I was going to say probably more often than not, right? <laughs> yeah. They get it wrong far more often than they get it right. That is, that is the whole point of science is that we're fumbling in the dark and we may have some background knowledge of our expected results. We may have some ideas that's called a hypothesis, but, but very often we get it wrong. And so scientists don't throw a tantrum and give up. They adjust their experiment. They start over, they try it again. And you know, if you're doing an experiment and you've tried it two or three times and it's not working, it's fine to say that didn't work and move on. You know, it's okay. Well, and it's probably okay to say, we don't know why that didn't work, but here are my thoughts about it. Here are, I don't know, I, I think that science is probably a little bit more creative than we give it credit for. Science is actually very creative. People don't realize that, I think, too. They We think of art and literature as being the creative spheres, and science is and math are somehow not. But the truth is mathematicians and scientists are very creative people. They're very curious people. They're using their creativity in a very different way from an artist, 
but they have to problem solve. They have to think outside the box. They have to try and try again and redo. Recognize patterns. Recognize patterns. Yeah. There's, and they're just like with an artist, there are certain principles that you follow to make sure it works or to hopefully make it work better. But at the end of the day, the principles can only take you so far. And then it's creativity and exploration and trying and trying again. So Michelle, you do dissections with your kids, right? Yeah, we do. Talk to me about dissections. What what do you dissect? What's the point? Why do you do it? So dissections are done in biology. And the reason that you do them is so that you can understand how living things work from the inside. And there isn't another way to do it. If you use a computer model, you can see the insides and you can see the organs, but it is not the same thing as actually cutting through the skin, as actually feeling an organ, as actually seeing the fat bodies. Living things are not like mathematical models. The spleen may not be exactly where the computer model told you it was going to be. You, you have to get inside a real thing that was alive in order to see how it works and, and to, to get behind that. If you are, have a child who has any interest at all in the medical fields, they have to do dissections in college. And if you don't prepare them with that by high school, they're going to really be behind. So do you have your kids, like as they're dissecting things, are they diagramming? What? How do you approach okay, it? So so it, it depends. I'm, we don't always do the exact same pattern every time, but here's, here's the, the general way that we do it. So before we start the dissection, we color a diagram or watch a movie or a video about the insides of, say, a frog, so that we know what we're looking for. And then dissections, usually you'll buy a kit for the dissection, and it comes with a guide, and you'll follow the directions on the guide, and it tells you make a cut here, and you open up the, the body cavity, and you'll search for the heart, and you'll search for the stomach, and other parts like that. And then after you're finished, you can have the kids draw a diagram or you can take pictures. I like to have kids doing a lab notebook because that is what real scientists do. If I were a real scientist dissecting a frog for the very first time, no one had done it before, I would be drawing meticulous diagrams and pictures. And it's true that frogs have been dissected millions of times and we know what's inside them. But you're training your kids for something in the future. Not every animal has been dissected. Well, and it's probably the first time they... Yes. Have done it. So to them, it's new and... Yes. And it's funny, even in the days of photography that we have now, the best biological studies still have illustrations and drawings. Of, they have pictures. Because a drawing, you can label it. You can get it from more than one point of view. You can zoom in on a particular part. It's, it's just, it's considered more accurate. So even though we have photography, a biologist who has just discovered a new flower will take pictures of it but they will also draw a sketch and a diagram of all the different parts of the flower that they have discovered. So you have your kids draw diagrams and things in their science sketch pad as you're going along? I would do that if I had enough space. But the science sketch pad, generally you just have two pages for an entire unit. So if there wasn't enough space and therefore to do for them to do all of the things, then they would do it on other paper too. But, but you have them do lots yeah, of sketching. I, I would have them do lots of sketching. Sketching and writing down observations and making tables of data, those are the kinds of things that you need to train your children to do when they're doing science. I think a lot of homeschoolers do that with nature studies. They're kind of, that's one of the things that they're trying to 
train is they say, okay, we're going to go out in nature and we're going to sit and observe and sketch and notice the details of the things around us. And you're saying you do that even in the classroom. You do that yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and nature studies are great training for scientific observation because that's what scientists do. We have all been living in this natural world our entire lives, but scientists will see something that has been in front of everybody's face all along and they will recognize it. Something that has always been there, but all of a sudden it has a deeper meaning because somebody recognized that it's there. So Michelle, before you alluded to the idea that we're not finished studying science, that it's a continual progression, that we're always learning more, how do you teach that to your kids? Well, one thing I like, and Layers of Learning does this, I like to point out where we do not know things. And I, textbooks never do this. Textbooks always go from the assumption that they're teaching the kid everything there is to know, and that's all there is to know, and they have to get it right on the test. But I like to teach where we don't know. For example, nutrition. We know almost nothing about human nutrition. We know about nutritional deficiencies. We know that if you don't get enough vitamin C, you will get scurvy for example, but we do not know the optimal diet for a human being. And that is crazy when you think about that. And part of that is because every single human being is different. And part of that is because we are so complex. A, a living creature is one of the most complex things in the entire universe. And so, you know, we don't know everything. And another way to teach that is to teach the stories of scientists. When you read their stories, you will see all of the times they failed and you will see all of the times that they got it wrong or that they had to rethink something or they had to redo it and how much they struggle, sometimes against themselves, sometimes against their knowledge, sometimes against the technology that is available in their day and sometimes against society. But it's never easy. And, and I think that kids need to realize that the science that we take for granted today is just the beginning we have a long, long way to go in learning about the world and, and how it works. So do you kind of have your kids follow science news at all? Or you know what I'm saying? Like as we discover new things, like I sometimes follow NASA. And if you follow the discoveries that NASA is making, you can hear about some of the latest yeah, scientific that, that, things. That's actually another really great way is to talk about this paper was just published this year about this brand new technology or this brand new discovery or whatever it was and to talk about you know things that come up in the news or things that are announced about a new creature is discovered you know people think well by now surely we have cataloged all the life on earth not even close there are things to discover in every single field of science so science is a pretty hands-on subject do you exclusively make it hands-on how do you approach that well, not, not exclusively. I mean, there are some things you need to read about in a book or watch on a video. I'm not going to take my kids to take the temperature of lava in person. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I want a trip to Hawaii. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. We actually, we have seen lava, but it's from, it was from a great distance because <laughs> <laughs> we did go to Hawaii, but, but yeah, I mean, so there, there are some things that you can't do. And then there's, there's some math. And that's not, I mean, we don't think of that as hands-on. And then, of course, you do need to read about science. You can't actually see the inside of an atom. So while there are still hands-on activities you can do with the atom, I mean, there's some stuff you just read and there's some stuff that you do. But most of it is hands-on. In fact, I think it's interesting. We always think that, especially kids once they get into their teens and the upper teens, we think they're too old for hands-on stuff. They can't. But 
but science is all hands-on. I mean, you don't even start that part of hands-on learning with kids until they're in their teens. Most schools don't. So teens can do hands-on stuff. Little kids can do hands-on stuff. And science is just another thing. And, and just about everything you learn about in science, you can do an actual project. So what percentage would you say should be like reading versus doing in the science realm? It's probably about 90-10. We probably spend about 90% of our time doing science and about 10% reading about it. I mean, I, I that's not an exact, that's not scientific. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't measured, but <laughs> we actually spend far more of our time doing the project. So for example, if I'm doing chemistry with my kids, I will have them help me get out the stuff for the chemistry experiment. And then we will start doing it. And then in the middle of the experiment, often there's a pausing point while you're waiting for something to boil or the first part of the reaction has happened. And at that point, I'll have them draw a picture in their notebook of the experiment we've done. When I have it labeled, this is what we added to that and this is how much we did. And then we'll talk about what just happened and what do you think is going to happen next. And then we can start talking about the principles. Let's say it was an acid base experiment. We're testing for pH. We get our different colors of things. And I'm like, you guys, why did the, these all turn different colors when we put different substances in it? You know, so I'll start off with the thing that catches their attention. And then we talk about the principle behind it. That's what we often do. And then you always have them do the kind of writing down their data and, you know. Yeah. Their conclusions and their ideas. Yeah. And, and if, it's, if it's something that you can't necessarily experience in a lab, like we may watch a video about earthquakes and they'll have video footage of earthquakes. I don't really want to experience one of those in person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. We don't live in a place that has a lot of seismic activity. And so we, my kids haven't experienced that personally and the video is fine and so then instead of actually doing I mean there are experiments you can do with shake tables and things like that and we have done those but you can also just have them write a notebook page about you know some of the terminology and things like the focal point and draw a picture of it so we do a lot of that too where we're just diagramming so do you buy a lot of chemicals and science equipment and things like that how do you prepare so that you're ready to teach your kids science in that so, hands-on way. So you, you do have to prepare. I think a lot of the things you can do just with stuff that you already have at your house, you know, things that you may not realize, especially when you're talking about the earth sciences and biology and physics. Chemistry, I, I do think you need to get some chemicals, especially if your kids are older than about eight years old. You need to have some real chemicals and do some really cool experiments they're past the where baking soda and vinegar are going to wow them so do you just buy a chemistry set or do you buy specific i buy specific chemicals because if you buy a chemistry set all you have is a few recipes and you don't have a lot of science to go along with those recipes you don't know what you're teaching it's, it's like the the milk and food coloring mm -hmm. you just get these recipes and you there's not a lot of flexibility but I do like to have real science tools. Like, for example, when we're doing biology, I think it's really important to have a microscope and some microscope slides. You need to see that stuff. Again, especially if your kids are older than eight years old. Once you're past that first cycle of layers of learning, you really need to get, you need to have beakers, you need to have real chemicals, you need to have a microscope if you possibly can. You can still do a lot of stuff without those things, but I think it adds richness to it. It makes it a lot better. So as far as the other side of it, that 10% that you mentioned where you're reading about science, how do you read about science? What, how do you approach that with your kids? I like to have my kids learn about real scientists. And there are a lot of kid-friendly biographies 
about different scientists in different fields. And I think that's really valuable for kids to learn about the people who did science and the story behind different discoveries. It makes it feel real and they understand. I think that actually has been one of the fascinating things is we've read about scientists. You can't help but read the stories of all of their failures and how long it took them to draw the conclusions that they're now famous for. Yeah. You know? It's funny because most scientists are famous for one thing. They spent their entire careers learning one thing. <laughs> and that's that's pretty amazing to us, you know, like and some of them even came across it by mistake. Yeah, they did. But <laughs> or they like, just like they like were looking Ian, for something else and then they discovered something by mistake. Right. Ian Fleming and penicillin, that was an accidental discovery. He had some petri dishes with bacterial samples that were growing in his lab. And he was a doctor and a scientist, and he had training, and so he knew what he was doing. But one of his petri dishes got contaminated with some fungus. And he recognized that that fungus was actually killing the bacteria colonies around it. And that happens in your refrigerator all the time. You can see bacterial colonies growing on your food that has been in there for way too long. And you can also see fungal colonies growing on that same food. And wherever the fungal colony is growing, there is not bacteria. And you can observe that. But people have been observing this for thousands of years, I'm sure. But he made the connection that but we can he made the connection. turn it into medicine. And that's because he had that science training. He knew what he was looking at. And the technology and the understanding of the microbial world had progressed enough by the time that he was came across this that he recognized it and was able to take advantage of that. So do you use textbooks at all in science or do you just read about the scientists? We don't use textbooks. Occasionally I'll use uh, things that are more like workbooks, like coloring, science coloring books, especially in biology. I think those are really valuable. And then sometimes I will use worksheet books that have practice for the math. Like, like if you're doing um, stoichiometry and chemistry and I want my kids to have extra practice, I'll either print things out from the internet or I will get a book that has extra practice in it. Just so that they can actually go through the yeah. science but, math connection. But we don't we don't read through textbooks very much. Sometimes I use them as a reference for me though. Um, but I don't usually have my kids read them because it's not engaging. They're bored. They don't understand most of it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of reading something that you weren't really that engaged in but you had to read it or you felt like you should read it and about 90% of it didn't even really you enter get, your brain. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what's happening to kids with textbooks. There are great science documentaries, though. That's a good resource, I think, for I, people. I think I think the two best places that people are making docu documentaries and have made them in the past is in geography and in science. Those two places have excellent, excellent resources for movies. Well, one of the cool things is, honestly, there are some chemicals and scientific equipment and things like that that you can't buy. Or that you don't want to because, I mean, you, super expensive, you, an experiment that you can get the chemicals for it, but really, should you? <laughs> you know? well, some are considered dangerous enough that it actually right. is difficult or impossible for That's just true. them to be shipped you, to your you, house. You, ha you have to be a teacher or in a college or a high school or you have to be a lab chemist to get some chemicals. That's true. So I love that those documentaries make things that wouldn't be accessible accessible all of a sudden there are also some experiments that are just kind of larger than life that you wouldn't do at your house but you can watch on 
a documentary or a little video clip or science show. Like, you know, the big giant tubs of non-Newtonian fluid that people are walking across. I don't actually want to fill a swimming pool with that and try it myself, but it's amazing to watch. Yeah, it is. There are things that you can't do. Like, for example... When the astronauts were on the moon, they actually dropped a hammer and a feather to see if Galileo was right. That things <laughs> actually do fall at the same speed, but that it's just air resistance that is causing the difference. And and you can go on to YouTube and get that video and watch it. We're not going to be able to stand on the moon, at least not yet. And so, <laughs> and so, you know, we can watch that clip, though, and see it. So, Michelle, when you're watching science videos and things, have you ever come across things that you say... That's not accurate. How do you know if it's good science? I don't think you always do know. And, and the truth is not all science is good science. I mean, we're, we're learning new things and we're disproving things in the past all the time. So just because it was true in that textbook from 50 years ago doesn't mean that we still consider it true today. And I don't think it actually hurts you. I think that most of the principles that you're going to see that are through high school level are pretty well established and they're pretty easy to find anywhere you want to go. And it's not hard for people who are making those videos or people who are writing those books to get correct information. I think you can be pretty confident that most of the stuff you come across is going to be pretty accurate. I don't think you need to worry too much about it. If you know enough to know that something isn't 100% accurate, then you can point that out to your kids. But if you don't know, the chances are it's not going to really matter. I think more often than not, it's not that it's not accurate. It's sometimes just simplified yes. to a point that maybe we didn't explain every single exactly. concept. Like, for example, when people teach children about an atom, they draw the nucleus with the protons and neutrons, and then they make these circles around the nucleus and put the electrons on it like they're little planets orbiting a sun. And they don't orbit at all. We know that that's not, a, that's not what happens at all. And yet that conceptual picture of an atom is still used all the time by real scientists and in education because... It's an important tool for us to conceptualize the different shells of an atom. So it still is a valuable tool. It's true. It's just simplified. And then yeah. as you go on and learn more, you can learn about quantum mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to take away from it just because it's not 100%, especially given that we don't know 100% of anything. Right. So do you have any favorite books that you would recommend that people should read as they're pursuing this study of science? I do like to have my kids read at least a few books that are actually written by real scientists about the scientists' field of expertise. I like to have my kids, when they're in high school, read Dialogues Concerning Two New Sciences. This is by Galileo, and it's an old book, and it was written originally in Italian, I think, or maybe Latin, probably Latin, actually. And so we read a translation of it. So we find a good translation that is modern, the reason this book is so important is because Galileo was actually writing it for a popular level audience of his day. It was written to everybody. He so wanted it's a little to more accessible. It. It's more accessible. And this is also a turning point in science. Galileo was saying Aristotle didn't know everything. That was basically his whole point. And so he was trying to get people to move away from old ideas and to start embracing new ideas and new ways of looking at the world through science. And this was a major turning point in science. So I like to have my kids read that one. I also like A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And this is a physics book. And parts of it can be dense. And I always tell my kids, look, if you get some math or some concepts that you don't understand, that's fine. Just skim through it and move on. 
It doesn't matter because later on, if they want to go back and read it, they can read it with more understanding and more depth as they're older. But even if you just kind of get a surface reading of something like A Brief History of Time, you're going to get a lot out of it. And then one final one that I really, really like is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. I've read this book recently. <laughs> Actually, he writes quite a few really entertaining books about science. He is not only, he was a great physicist, but he was also a great teacher. So Karen, what, what did you, why did you like it? Because he is a great writer. He's entertaining. And we talk about making science accessible. He was the one who we mentioned believes that you don't understand something if you can't explain it to someone young, like explain it to a child. And he just has a way of explaining science in a down-to-earth, very understandable way and, and really entertaining. And he was also a physicist. So yeah. a lot of the topics that he covers are very, very math-heavy and very conceptually difficult, but he can break it down and you can understand it. Yeah, he's very good at like the real world examples of things and just, I don't know, he's entertaining. Yeah, he is. The final thing that I like to have my kids read is to read science books that are told from more than one point of view about topics that are controversial right now. And I'm not going to mention any titles, but, you know, the topic of evolution is really controversial. Global warming is really controversial. We have vaccinations are controversial. We have a lot of things that right now in our day people are arguing about with science. And I like to have my kids read a book from each side of the debate. And so they can see both sides are reasonable. Both sides have good ideas. And one side is probably right and one side is probably wrong. Or, or maybe somewhere in they're the both wrong or yeah. maybe it's somewhere in the middle. But it's important to read both sides of kind of the cutting edge of science or where society is debating science and kind of see, you know, to understand what's going on there. I think it's interesting to have my kids read articles on the ethics of science too. What is ethical moving forward? Like cloning, something like that. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and those are real <laughs> yeah. questions that scientists yeah. are asking every day as they're discovering new things and deciding whether or not we should engineer children to be just exactly what we want, to be free of disease, to be, you know, all of those things are things that we're saying, wow. Like, for example, as we have worked on the Human Genome Project, it's been interesting to see how people are saying, well, should we alter some genes if we're able? And things like that. There's, yeah, there's and, some cutting edge things. Where does that end? Like, if you alter a gene so that you prevent a hereditary disease. Do you cause something else? Well, and, and can you also then go further and edit a gene so that it makes someone taller? Or, you know, I mean, there, yeah. there's a lot of things that, that could be ethically tied into that. Just recently, there was a announcement that they have learned to edit the mitochondrial DNA. And the mitochondria are little tiny organelles inside every cell of your body, and they all come through your mother. Because the only part that comes from the father is the DNA itself. All of the organelles are in the female egg. And so all of those organelles, including the mitochondria, come from the mother. And being able to edit that mitochondrial DNA is huge because a lot of our diseases that we suffer from are actually mitochondrial diseases. They don't have anything to do with your genes at all. So I think that can get pretty fascinating when you get into some of the more modern research of what's happening right now. And you're not going to find a lot of that in a textbook because it's happening right now. So just like the other layers of learning topics, you approach science as a family too, right? 
all yeah, family we do. style? We, I mean, there there isn't a single experiment that you can come up with that isn't appealing to every age. I mean, they're they're all fun. Anytime they even baking soda and vinegar, okay? If you put it inside a sealed baggie, everybody's gonna have fun watching that thing explode. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We compartmentalize the learning a little bit more by having the older ones go further with an experiment or do the math or learn a little bit deeper. For example, we'll, we'll talk about the atom again. I will have my kids do that very simplified Bohr model of the atom, which looks like the solar system, you know. Mm -hmm. But while they're drawing those atoms, I can then go off to the side, the other end of the table, and I can teach my older kids about s orbitals and p orbitals and d orbitals and f orbitals and how there's actually an electron cloud of probability something that may be a little too advanced for my younger kids but everybody's learning about the atom at the same time but for the most part you watch most of the videos together you do most of the experiments together you do a lot of the reading together except for the extra things you ask your high yeah. schoolers to read right so it's even though it's science you really do it family style we do and and just like in other subjects, at the end, you know, their 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 lab notebook or or their write up that they're doing for science, it's the same it's the same assignment essentially, but at a different level. Your little kids are doing less than your big kids are, so yeah, they they can they can do it together. I don't like to let the writing get in the way of science. I don't want it to become the writing part to be such a chore that the kid hates science now. You know. It, I like to keep it. I think one of the cool balanced. things about that, though, as we've done science, the writing can come in little doses. Like even if we're doing an experiment and I have them write down the materials, then I say, OK, go gather the materials out of the science bin and they go and do that. And then as we are going through the steps, they can record a little bit at a time. It's not like okay, we're going to sit down and do all of the writing for this page and then all of the experiment or all the experiment and then all of the writing, you can just do it in little doses. And I think that's helpful to kids who don't love writing. I think so too. If, if they only have to write a few words and if they're doing it for a reason, I think it helps them to be more willing to do it and, and less intimidated by the writing. So yeah. that's, that's good. So if you had one piece of advice for people who were afraid to teach science, what would it be? Find a good guide and learn with your kids. I guess that's two things. <laughs> but but you do you do need to have a good guide. And it it might be a textbook. I I I personally think layers of learning is better than a textbook because it's very hands-on based. It's the actual hands-on stuff comes first and the the other learning is centered around that hands-on stuff. I think that's one of the hard things for me early on, you know, before we even had layers of learning. I could find a science book and it taught the science and I could find an experiment and it taught the experiment, but I struggled to find the science and the experiment married together so that I could teach it to my kids. You know what's even harder to find is a book that will help you have your kids do science where they're designing experiments because you need a little bit of guidance like especially if you're not a scientist you don't know where to begin with that but but there are ways to have your kids 
experiment, really literally experiment with chemistry and also have it be safe at the same time. But you need somebody to guide you, you know, which chemicals can I actually mix together? Because you don't want to have accidents there. But Layers of Learning does that. We have a lot of places in there where we're telling kids to design an experiment or they take the beginning of an experiment and then they have to figure out what happens next. You know. You're not going to give them the whole recipe and all of the answers right exactly. up front. They and actually need to find out. What we call experiments in science, we usually really mean recipes. Kids are following directions and doing A, B, and then C. And a real experiment, you have no idea what's going to happen in a real experiment. I mean, you may have a, a concept, you may have you have a hypothesis, but but you don't know. And so kids need to have that experience of trying things out, kind of venturing into the dark. So do you do the same subject of the day with science that you do with your other subjects? Yeah, for our family, we do science once a week, except for sometimes the kids will have a project that they begin one day and we need to finish it up because... That happens to us a lot in science. It's yeah. like a, you're observing something that happens over time. Right. You, you, have, to, you have to let the precipitate dry out. <laughs> overnight uh -huh. or you've planted a seed and you have to measure it every day. You know, there's, there's the crystals like growing, yes, things like that, things like that. So, and then my kids also do some outside reading. And if I just happen across a good video and I want to show it to them right then, I just do, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's my homeschool. I get to pick the subjects. I get to pick the schedule. I can, I can do whatever I want, but basically we do, we do science every Wednesday and we spend anywhere from an hour to two hours usually on it. And like history, I believe that science needs to be taught all the time every year from kindergarten through graduation. And you don't hesitate if it's not science day to say, hey, let's watch this cool video or, oh, let's grab a book that we're reading about. Hold on. Or if you're learning about the weather, you wouldn't hesitate to grab a book about the weather, even though it's not science day or record on your weather log or whatever. You don't. Yeah. It serves you. You don't serve it. That's it, the concept. That is. And and when I'm, especially with little kids, there are lots and lots and lots of science themed books for picture books for younger kids. Libraries have extensive collections of science books for little kids. That's usually an easy to find. Everything except chemistry. I'm kind of angry about that. But you need to write some. <laughs> no. Write some chemistry books for I little kids. <laughs> Somebody needs to. You people out there in the audience. <laughs> so, but... I like to read those to my kids at bedtime, you know, when, when they're little to when we're doing story time. Sometimes we pick science books or, you know. You know, I often feel like people who read to their kids, like at nighttime, they always choose the stories. And we're the same as you. Ours is a mixture of fiction and nonfiction books. And we just grab things out of our library basket that we have. Mm -hmm. And it's just a complete mix of things. So, yeah, science is going to come up a lot, even when we're not learning science for the subject of the day at the moment. Yeah. It just comes up all the and time. And that, that actually that. is where we spend most of our reading time on science is outside of science time. We, we spend our, our science time during the week doing experiments and doing write-ups and, you know, keeping things in our notebook and maybe doing a worksheet or a coloring page. But our time, our reading time is usually either during assigned reading time during school or it's, you know, reading at bedtime or sometimes we watch a documentary before we go to bed, that kind of thing. And you can talk about science when you're in the car and noticing things and it just infiltrates your life, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be on your subject of the day, science day. 
Right. It doesn't have to be. So what, what about you, Karen? What is, I know your schedule is a little different from mine. Yeah. Our, our science is just the Tuesday, Thursday, because we do art and science twice a week on those days. And, um, I don't know why we do the two subjects a day thing. We just started that and it just fit with our schedule. So I, I think everybody's family is different and there's not a right way. I mean, we have had lots of layers of learning families that say, I like to do history for a full solid week. And then I do geography for a full solid week. And then I do science for a full solid week. And I think that works too. I mean, whatever schedule works for your family is great, but, but to be coming back to it repeatedly is important. Yeah. You know, to, to not, to not just drop science out of the, you continue to talk about the things that you're learning in all of the subjects every day as they come up in natural ways. And, and of course with your reading, I think that always draws us back in because we have this library book basket where I've filled it with the things from our unit, all of the subjects. And so it's just constantly cropping up and we're reviewing and talking about things all the time, not just on that day. Yeah. I think that's important. I, I, I don't, usually have my kids memorize a whole ton of things in science but when we repeat them frequently they get to know it and they remember it so Karen tell me what to you is the hardest part of science honestly I don't think it's really hard for me anymore but going into homeschooling the hardest part of science was that I felt like I had to gather materials for things that I didn't even understand yet I had to put things together that I felt unsure about and having layers of learning has made it a lot easier. I go through and I can, you know, select the experiments that we're going to do ahead of time. I choose them in the summer and I get the ingredients. Then the big challenge is remembering what I got and where I put it and, (laughs) you know, pulling it out when it's the right time. But over the years, it's become easier and easier. And I think it's because I've learned the science. I've learned the approach that a lot of it is about curiosity and experimentation and learning. So it doesn't intimidate me like it did. But early on, I felt like, how do I teach this? How do I get all of the materials? How do I keep it together? I felt like I had to be really prepared. And in other subjects, I didn't feel that. And I think a lot of it is letting go of that, realizing you can learn it with your kids, just like the other subjects. Yeah, I think people think that you have to have a science degree to learn about science, or you have to be learning it from someone with a science degree to learn about science, but that's not true. Anybody can learn about science. There's tons of resources out there, and Layers of Learning has pulled a lot of those together so that you've got the stuff, you you know, you've got book lists, you've got the experiments, you've got the principles, you've got the famous people that, that are surrounding that particular subject of science and then you can take that and just learn it with your kids while you're doing it with them. It makes science become accessible and I feel like I can be successful at teaching it because it's brought together enough for me that it's all available but not just canned recipes that I don't understand in the end. So it's changed our science for the better. It's made us more curious and we understand a lot more. And so much of that is just diving in and doing it. Like anything in life, you can learn it and you'll get better and better at it as you go through. Just have courage and don't be afraid of science. It's fun. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating wherever you listen. Ratings and comments help people find happy family-style homeschooling. Visit us at layersoflearning.com, at Instagram, and on our Facebook group. 
And make sure to tune in next month for the next podcast. In the meantime, we wish you happiness in your homeschool. Have fun learning. learning.